0: 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain Who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God Abide in him. When we began our study, I reminded you of an ancient church tradition. According to church traditions, John the Apostle, who wrote this epistle, spent the twilight years of his life in a city called Ephesus where he pastored the church in Ephesus. He had already written the gospel of John and he'd already written the revelation and he was writing these epistles. Scholars seem to indicate that these are the last or nearing the last words that John would ever write. And according to the church tradition, as he began to become old and his hair turned snow white and he became frail and they would have to pick him up and they would have to bring him to the meetings. He was the last living apostle and everyone would wait on bated breath to see what he had to say. And invariably he would say, little children, love each other. And they would look at each other and and say, you know, he seems to have this one message and it's a reoccurring message. And he seems to say the same message week after week after week. And someone confronted him and said, you know, is there anything else that you have to say to us? And he goes, when you get this right, then I'll tell you what's next. We've already discovered our obligation to love. In the second chapter of 1 John, John asks and answers the question, how is it that I can be sure that I know God? Now in this third chapter, John will ask and answer yet another question, how do I know that I love God? And remember in the first three verses, he he asks you? Have you experienced the love of God in verses 1 through 3? Have you turned from your sin and its enslavement in verses 4 through 9? And now he is going to outline, is your life marked by love? Do you really love the Lord? Do you love him? And the proof or the evidence or the affidavit of affection is love. It must be love. The Beatles sang when I was growing up, all you need is love. You know the song, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. John would have said, all you need is love, but he would have added, oh, by the way, all you need is love coupled with a healthy dose of the truth. You need love coupled with a healthy dose of the truth and obedience to God's word. And so in our outline, you're going to discover love reveals our true nature in verse 10. Love relays the true message in verse 11. Love refuses to persecute the righteous in verses 12 through 13. Love requires passage, or we might say travel or distance from death to life. Love refuses to hate in verse 15. Love resides in the love of Christ in verse 16. Love repudiates self and then gives to others in need in verse 17. And so when John tells us that love reveals our true nature, in verse 10, look what it says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Remember, I want to bring you back just for a moment so that we can understand the context and then connect. In verse 7, read it again. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Remember, righteousness here and in the passages that we've just read means not just simply how you believe or, or how you behave. In this context, righteous, the righteous life is the life which is the result of salvation that comes from Christ. By God's grace, the Christian does righteously because he or she has been made righteous. In other words, this isn't something that you have to fabricate within yourself in order to make God happy. This is something that is in you, which Jesus has placed in you by his Holy Spirit because he's completely satisfied with Christ. So when he says in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or made known, whoever does not practice righteousness, what does that mean? A right standing with God based on the reality of the grace of God which you've received in Christ Jesus. Whoever who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. John is telling us that love reveals our true nature. He's also telling us that a lack of love also reveals our true nature the presence or the absence of love is going to indicate whether or not the person is the child of God or the child of the devil. It was Mark Twain who famously wrote, always do right. This will gratify most people and astonish the rest. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's a painful and uncomfortable thought But the Bible constantly, repeatedly contrasts the children of God and the children of the devil. The children who practice righteousness with love and anyone who doesn't practice righteousness with love. John links the practice of righteousness with love. Anyone who doesn't practice a pure, holy, righteous life, according to John, doesn't really love the Lord. We fail to practice righteousness every single time we mistreat each other or abuse each other, when we ignore each other or neglect each other. Burned into my mind is the passage in in Ephesians where it says be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you we are children of the light or we're children of the darkness we're children of God or we're children of the devil John doesn't give us a middle ground or a work in progress. We are either one or the other. And so what John is arguing and is trying to remind us is that our nature reveals our paternity. God is righteous, not unrighteous. God is holy, not unholy. God is love, not the absence of love. So John suggests that the best indicator of what constitutes righteous behavior is how you treat each other. And now we begin to understand what Jesus meant when he said, love the Lord, love the Lord, and love each other. He links the two together, that your real love for the Lord is going to be expressed in in how you treat one another and minister to one another. Righteousness is love. And unrighteousness in that kind of sense is a failure to love. And remember what I already told you. Righteousness in this passage means the righteous life which is the result of salvation in Christ. And the righteous life which is the result of salvation in Christ Is manifest in the way we really behave towards one another. Max Jukes lived in New York. He didn't believe in Christ. He didn't certainly believe in Christian training. He refused to take his children to church, even though they begged him to go. He had 1,026 descendants. 300 were sent to prison for an average term of 13 years each. 190 were public prostitutes. 680 were admitted alcoholics. His family cost the state in excess of $420,000. But I I need you to do the math because Max Jukes lived a long time ago. We're talking about prior to the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary War took place in 1776. We're talking about two generations before that during the time of of the Great Awakening. From what we can gather, they made little or no contribution to society. Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state, at the same time as Max Jukes. He loved the Lord. He saw that his children were in church every Sunday. He served the Lord to the best of his ability. He had 929 descendants. Of those, 430 became ministers. 86 became university professors. 13 became university presidents. 75 authored good books. Seven were elected to the United States Congress. Yes, even good families have a few bad seeds. No, I'm just kidding. In this context, it it wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing of people who were actually trying to minister to the the broader culture. One became a vice president of the United States and his family never cost the state one red cent. Why am I bringing this up? Because love leaves a legacy. Love isn't something that just happens in the here and the now. Love in the present is going to bring love into the future. And love relays the true message. Look what it says in verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. John emphasizes the origins of love in verse 11. He encourages us to go back to the beginning. And when he says, for this is the message (coughs) that you heard from the beginning, I'm going to suggest that the immediate context seems to indicate that he's talking about the message of the gospel that the people in Ephesus heard right from the start concerning the love of God for them and his willingness to forgive them. But the implication isn't just simply the first time they heard the gospel. The implication seems to take us all the way back to the beginning of the revelation of God, which is found in in the book of Genesis. God's revelation from the very beginning was a revelation of love. How do we get that? Because God wouldn't allow human beings to continue in sin and rebellion. We hear the story of the creation, how he places Adam and Eve in a garden. We hear about their rebellion and disobedience. But God isn't content to allow people to to remain in in rebellion and disobedience. From Genesis chapter 3, you have to go all the way to Genesis chapter 22 to, to get the first mention of love in the Bible. And it's the love of a father for his son. As Abraham, where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, who you love. If your spiritual origins are truly with the Father, love isn't an option. It's an obligation. It's a duty. It's a command. It isn't something that's optional for the Christian. And the contrast is going to be for John, if your origins are in God the Father through Jesus Christ, the presence of love is going to be a powerful presence in your life. But if your origins are with Satan, you will hate each other and you will live as enemies of God. That's the point. And so love relays the true message. Love refuses to persecute the righteous. And so in verses 12 and 13, look what he says Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. John is, in effect, saying, You're all familiar with the story in Genesis. Are you raising Cain? Are you raising Cain's in the church? Cain's jealousy led to hatred. The jealousy that led to hatred then led to murder. Do you love each other? And some of you might say, well, at least we're not trying to kill each other. Do you think that that's the standard that the New Testament provides? I don't think so. I met a young woman who was accused and later convicted of murdering her husband. It may seem silly to you, but I ask this question. Why didn't you just leave him? Why didn't you get a divorce? She looked at me and she said, I'm a Christian, I don't believe in divorce. And I said... I just need you to connect the dots here. Do you think that divorce is a merciful alternative to murder? Of course, we don't believe in divorce. But if you have to choose between divorce and murder, which one are you going to pick? Murder is living on the level of Satan. John points to Cain's wicked murder of his brother Abel. Cain is, by the way, this is interesting. Cain is the only proper noun or the proper name mentioned in this epistle. His is the only name that we're going to get in this epistle. John gives his life as an example of murder and hatred and jealousy. And the story, of course, you're all familiar with. It's found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it says, Adam, and Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. It isn't bad enough that that she got pregnant and she gave birth to Cain in her mind and in her heart. She believed that Cain was the answer to the promise that God had given that you're going to conceive and you're going to have a child and you're going to bring forth the Messiah. I'm going to suggest to you that all of the passage seems to indicate that in Eve's mind she thought Cain might be the deliverer. Can you imagine a mom's disappointment? Not only is her son not the deliverer, but he's a murderer. John asks the question, why did he murder him? And when you read Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he sums up the passage because his works were evil and his brothers Righteous. Remember what I said to you earlier. Righteous here means the righteous kind of life, which is the result of salvation through Christ. What are we to think of all of this? What were Cain's works? You'll remember he brought a sacrifice to God. Cain worshipped God. You'll remember one was a tiller of the soil. That's Cain. One was a keeper of sheep, that was Abel. Cain brought vegetables. Abel brought a lamb and blood. I'm going to suggest to you that Cain worshipped God, but he didn't do it on God's terms. Coming to God on your own terms, your own way, is evil. In other words, people go, well, what was it? Why why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and he rejected Cain's sacrifice? Some scholars will say that maybe part of the answer lies in the attitude of the heart, and I think that that's right. But I also think that part of the reality is the revelation that God gave in the garden when he slew an animal and he covered our mother and father in an animal skin and God revealed to them that part of the process of worship is that God would only accept something that was innocent on behalf of that which was guilty. Cain invents his own religion. A bloodless sacrifice and a loveless sacrifice. Imagine you live in a world where you go, I could come to God any way that I want. Tell me how you plan to go to God. Well, I'm just going to show up. And what are you going to say to him? Well, you're the creator God and you made me the way that I am. And you created the circumstances which I find myself in. And according to the revelation of God, that's not true. God created Adam and Eve perfect in a garden. And in rebellion and disobedience, they ran away from God. But in that rebellion and disobedience, God made a provision so that you could come to him on his terms. Cain invents a religion. Bloodless. Loveless. According to Genesis chapter 4, who is Cain's father in reality? Well, we know from the text it's Adam. Who was Abel's father? Adam. So why in the world are we led to believe that Cain is Satan's son? Because according to Genesis chapter 4 and according to 1 John chapter 3, he does the devil's deeds. He works the work of the devil. Let's just ask a big question. Do you think Cain started his life out hating his brother? I'm going to suggest to you that it didn't begin that way. He didn't begin his life hating his brother. He didn't start off life being jealous of his father, of his brother. I'm gonna suggest to you he's the older brother, he grows up, he begins by worshiping, but he begins to worship God on his own terms in a bloodless sacrifice, in a loveless sacrifice with a wrong heart, with a wrong attitude, with a wrong sacrifice, and then Cain notices his brother's worship and sacrifice are acceptable, and then he notices that his sacrifice is unacceptable, And for those of you unfamiliar with the passage in Genesis chapter 4, I guess I should read it because it says in chapter 4 of verse 2 of Genesis, Then she bore again this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was angry. And his countenance fell. That's an Old Testament way of saying his face dropped. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. His jealousy turned to hatred, and his hatred to murder and Cain had two choices it's the same choices that every single human being in every single generation is faced with he could worship God on God's terms or he could continue to worship on his own terms Every single person can come to God on God's terms or not come to God on God's terms. At what point did Cain decide to kill his brother? At what point did the jealousy turn into rage? And then rage turned to murder. I'm going to again suggest to you that the make-believer can masquerade as a Christian. The make-believer can say, my religion is fine and my spirituality is fine. And I want to go to God and I want to be religious and I want to be spiritual. And if God doesn't like my religion or my spirituality, who are you to say that he won't accept me or that he will accept me? The make-believer, the children of the devil, they're quite capable of worship. They're quite capable of pretending to be children of God. They can go to religious meetings. They can make religious sacrifices. Cain killed his brother. Not just simply because he was jealous of his brother or hated his brother, but because God accepted him and accepted his worship. You see, Cain's sin wasn't just simply a sin against his brother. It was a sin against love. And let me tell you why. Because the world falls into two categories. Those you're supposed to love and don't. And those that you're supposed to love and do. And that's part of the point of the passage. It was not murder that made Cain's heart evil. Cain's heart was evil because it wasn't dominated by love. The real test of loving God is loving your brother. And so Cain fails the task. John is concerned, he's concerned lest an evil heart appear in the family of God. He's concerned that our hearts might be controlled by jealousy or controlled by hate. And that jealousy and hate could lead to violence towards members of the family of God. And so in verse 13 he says, do not marvel my brethren if the world hates you. He says, don't be surprised. We're to expect violent opposition and persecution from the world. Now, again, we have to describe and define what the world means. Is he talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees? Is he talking about beautiful uh, waterfalls and and the redwood forest? Is he even talking about the world of men in John 3.16, where he says, for God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. Who is this world that he's talking about? It's not the earth itself. It's not even the people in the earth that he's talking about. The word is cosmos. You know that word because we get the word cosmology or or cosmopolitan from it. It It is a description of the world that stands in opposition to God. Here John means that Thing, that system of thought, that system of belief, those systems of philosophy and ideas that stand in opposition to the revelation of God, to the word of God, to the gospel of God, and to the Christ of God. So that's what he's talking about. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why does the world hate you? Because you love the Lord, and you love Jesus, and you love each other, and you go to God. You've experienced his love, his grace, his mercy, his salvation in Christ. You make crazy statements like, hey, I believe I'm saved. What are you talking about? Saved from what? I believe I'm going to heaven. How could you possibly know that? And on what basis could you possibly come to that conclusion? You see, the more you talk with the people who don't agree with you, they'll begin to say, how could you possibly believe that? How could you possibly make that a part of your life? If the world stands in opposition to God and the things of God and the gospel of God and the Christ of God and you stand for Jesus and you stand for the gospel and you stand for the things of God, then you should expect resistance, but you shouldn't just expect any kind of resistance. What John anticipates is a violent opposition. You don't have to raise your hand because I don't want to know too much. But when you were a child, a small child, maybe even a larger child, did you ever say to anyone at any time, I wish you would? dead looking around seeing uh uh-oh if you've ever said those words one of two things was going on inside of your heart you either thought that you really wish they were dead i mean where they're dead d-e-a-d dead 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 some of you might be a little more innocent and a little more loving more innocent and loving than me, you didn't really want them dead in your heart. If they were in China or Thailand, you didn't necessarily want them dead, but if they were in Australia, just far enough away that you didn't have to deal with them, you were content for them to be alive, but you just didn't want them to be alive in your life. That's the tension of the world where they look at you and it isn't good form to just simply kill you. But in some parts of the world right now, that's exactly what people do to Christians. They kill them. In North Africa, they kill them. In Saudi Arabia, they kill them. In Korea, they kill them. In certain parts of the world where people who are in charge, who hate Christians, they, they kill them because the world is opposed to Christ. And Cain's crime results in the death of someone that he should have loved. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Jesus said, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, that's why the world hates you. Jesus reminds you that it hated him before it hated you. Jesus reminds you that the the world followed him, but then turned on him and killed him And so it shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't surprise you that there comes a point of impasse where people can't tolerate you. And Jesus died for those who hated God. He died for those who were incapable of loving God. Apart from grace. Apart from the gospel. So when he says, don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you, it's interesting to me how many even Christians look to the world for wisdom. They look to the world for understanding. They look to the world for an example. But how in the world are you going to find wisdom and understanding Apart from the gospel and apart from Jesus, Jesus is the one who demonstrates unselfish love. Jesus is the one who considers others and not self. And so our life, according to the New Testament, becomes a life where we look at Jesus and we imitate Jesus. And so now John goes to the, and, and brings to our attention that love requires passage from death to life in verse 14. He says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That expression we know is used some 16 times in this little letter of 1 John. The knowledge here is a certain kind of knowledge in other words, in the Greek language, there's two kinds of knowledge that, well, there, actually there's several different nuances of knowledge. There's things that we know intellectually or distantly or, or in a detached kind of way or superficially. But when John uses the expression, we know, it's a word that speaks of certainty, and contrast to a vague, mystical, subjective feeling. In other words, the false teachers that John is addressing would be asked the question, are you saved apart from God, apart from Christ, and apart from the gospel? And they would say in that mystical, subjective thing inside of their heart, they hope in a mystical kind of detached, kind of subjective kind of way that, that it might be true. But John says, I'm going to take the subjective, mystical thing out of it. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. The knowledge is certain. And the false teachers in Ephesus appealed to knowledge that was subjective and and fuzzy and and wishy-washy. But John wants to point to something that is real and concrete and tangible. John's knowledge is real and concrete. We are people who know God. We have a lifestyle of saying yes to God in chapter 2, verse 3, and again in verse 5, and then again in verse Ten, in this the children and of God and the children of the devil are made known. This is how you can tell the real from the not real. The true from the false. Here's what he's saying. Are you a Christian? Well, if, if a person says, I, I am. But they hate other Christians. What, here's what John is saying. If you know God, then you're going to have a lifestyle of saying yes to God. That makes sense. If you know God, you're going to have a love for others. Chapter 3, verse 10. Again in verse 14. Again in verse 16. Again in verses 18 and 19. Not only are you going to have a lifestyle of saying yes to God, a love for others, but you are going to have in reality the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. By the way, can I make the Holy Spirit live inside of you? No. How do you get the Holy Spirit to live inside of you? You turn from your sin and you acknowledge Jesus as Savior. You receive him by faith. And the Bible says to those he gave to be the children of God, that they receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to go, but I'm going to send someone exactly like me. To be with you and in you. Real Christians have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. In verse 24 of chapter 3 it says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit that he's given to us. So... If you are people who know God, if you have a lifestyle of saying yes to God, if you have a deep love for each other, the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you, there's one other thing. You have a lifestyle of saying no to sin in chapter 5, verse 18. Look what it says. We know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one can't even touch him. You have a lifestyle of saying yes to God and you have a lifestyle of saying no to sin. You don't have to depend on some vague feeling. Are you a Christian? I hope so. I hope so. John spells it out for you. You don't have to appeal to something subjective or mystical or evaluate some modern-day spiritual claim that someone may or may not have over you. Love requires that you pass from death to life. In verse 14, it says, we know that we've passed from death to life. We know it concretely Can you say in that same way, in a concrete fashion, do you know that you passed from death to life? Have you left that world and entered into a new world? I get it that not everybody knows the date and the hour that they were saved. I was saved March 3rd, 1973, at about 9 o'clock in the evening, California time. I know the exact day and the exact time I know the exact day and the exact time when I said yes to Jesus and walked away from a life of sin. When I asked Jesus to become real in my life and I prayed the sinner's prayer and the wickedness and the weight of my wicked life was lifted from me and the presence of the Holy Spirit came and lived inside of me. Love requires that we pass from death to life. And so here, when it says we know that we pass from death, death here means spiritual death. We're all born spiritually dead. We're estranged from God and we're estranged from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're dead even though we think we're alive. For those people who understand what I'm talking about, you lived a life estranged, distant from God, dead to the things of God, dead to the Bible, dead to the gospel. A person who fills his or her life in self-absorption is spiritually dead. A person who's never participated in the life of Jesus is spiritually dead. A person who doesn't have the spirit of Christ living inside of her heart is spiritually dead. A person who lives in sin is spiritually dead. A person who's alienated from God is spiritually dead. A person who lives in sinful pleasure is dead while they're still alive. A person who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't have God's Son and the Holy Spirit living in their heart are dead. A person who does great acts of kindness and great acts of charity, great acts of generosity, great religious works apart from Christ and apart from the gospel and apart from grace is dead in first Timothy chapter 5 verse 6 Paul tells Timothy but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives I was reading a note from a person who I know today who, who goes to campuses and ministers to people and, and asks them and, and engages them in the world in which they live. And many of these people are philosophical naturalists. Some are agnostics and atheists and, and, and they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe Christianity. They, they, they don't believe the gospel. And so he asks them, what do you believe? And many of them will cite evolution as an explanation for the world in which we live. Some have vague ideas about mysticism or subjectivism or maybe some sort of impersonal Type of God who doesn't really know you or doesn't really care about you and, and, and they struggle with the idea because they wonder if this world is meaningful or meaningless and many of them come to the conclusion that the world is meaningless and so they distract themselves with sex or drugs or pleasure or relationships or the accumulation of things or trying to get things and have more things because they're trying to numb the Reality that life is probably meaningless. And so all they have to look forward to is a meaningless life, which is going to result in a meaningless death. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, later John will write, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, there are people who are spiritually dead and there are spiritually alive. According to John, he says the exact opposite of what I say. There's only two kinds of people, Italian people and people who wish they were. No, John says, no, there's two kinds of people those who are spiritually dead and those who are spiritually alive. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're really dead. In other words, is it possible for the spiritually dead to say, I'm alive? I'm alive. I'm spiritual. I'm alive. I know right and wrong. I'm a good person. I'm a decent person. I'm a moral person. But according to John, love is the proof of spiritual life. Love is the evidence that we've passed from death into life. Jesus alone is the one who saves and imparts that life. And it's okay for you to ask the very hard question, Do you love your fellow Christians? Or do you despise them in your heart? Do you think evil about them? Do you constantly criticize them, blame them, grumble, gossip, backbite? Do you even participate in evil deeds against them? And it's certainly the devil's nature to accuse and condemn and isolate and steal and destroy and eventually Kill And so John says, that can't be your life. And so he says, love refuses to hate. In verse 15, it says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, love refuses to hate God's people. <clears throat> this isn't some generic hate. You mean love refuses to hate everything yeah, even evil, yeah. No, that can't be what the passage is talking about. It can't mean despising what's wrong and what's evil. Many people feel they're acceptable to God with a heart filled with hate and bitterness and animosity and grudges against their fellow Christians or the unbelieving people in their lives. They can't imagine that God would refuse their worship, reject their offering, dismiss their sacrifice, refuse their friendship or fellowship. But they, like Cain, come to God, not on God's terms, but on on their own terms. I'm going to go to church. With a heart filled with hate, animosity, bitterness and grudges, anger, seething, seething anger. And I'm going to sing songs. You can have all of this world. Just give me Jesus with a heart filled with hate, animosity, anger towards everyone in my life. So what do you think about that? Yeah, according to John, it makes no sense. I want to come to God with a heart filled with anger, bitterness, jealousy, resentment, hatred. Even though the verse says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Hey, you mean John is drawing a moral equivalence to someone hating in their heart and killing them in real life? Well, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You've heard that it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders is in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, raka, which means fool or empty headed or airhead in, in the Aramaic language, is in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, that means a person who's void of judgment shall be in danger of hell fire. So how is it possible for Jesus to say such a thing? It would appear that anger and bitterness and resentment and contempt has the very same substance in the heart of the person who is ready, willing, able to kill. So the murderer acts out his feelings more violently and more permanently. But in God's eyes, they're equivalent. God looks at the heart. And some people are quite adept at camouflaging their heart. You can hide your heart from your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your family, your friends, your neighbors. You can hide your heart. You can hide your heart but you can't hide your heart from God. He knows the truth. No matter how much makeup you wear, no matter how much khaki clothes you have in your spiritual wardrobe, he sees your heart. He knows your heart. A. Plummer, an Old Testament classic pulpit commentary writer, this is hundreds of years old, he wrote, quote, love is the only security against hate. And as everyone who does not love is potentially a hater... So every hater is potentially a murderer. A murderer is a hater who expresses his hatred in the most emphatic way. A hater who does not murder abstains for various reasons from the extreme way of expressing his hate. But the tempter of the two men remain the same. It was his way of saying that the person who hates and the person who murders still is motivated By the same devil. And note, no murderer has eternal life. The implication is, neither does the person who hates his brother. Which begs yet another question. Can murderers be saved? Got one no, a couple of yeses. So we'll try it again. Can murderers be saved? Some yes and fewer no's. But I'm going to suggest to you the answer is yes and no. What do I mean by that? Murderers can't be saved who continue to be murderers. In what sense? Can you imagine if a person comes to you and says, You know, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You know, I'm a serial killer, I I struggle with killing people. How are you doing? You know, I cut it down to about two people per year. <laughs> See, you're laughing, but you get it. For the person who says, I used to be a serial killer and now I only kill on a occasion, I'm down to one or two a year, and you go, Thank God you're making progress. You know, look on the bright side. Look at all, look at the progress that you've made. You don't rejoice with that person. The apostle Paul was a murderer. He helped kill Christians. Moses killed an Egyptian and buried his body in the sand and looked both ways and hoped nobody saw him. David helped kill Uriah the Hittite. Can a murderer become the friend of God? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Can a person become a Christian and remain a murderer? That's what Paul is saying, or that's what John is saying. That's exactly what he's saying. You know, I heard an amazing story about Mickey Cohen, who is the real life mobster who is. Fictionally portrayed in The Godfather of of this guy who goes to Las Vegas. And if you ever saw the movie The Godfather, he gets shot and killed. But Mickey Cohen was a notorious criminal. A notorious criminal. And he went to a Billy Graham crusade. And Billy Graham gave an invitation. And Mickey Cohen came forward and prayed a prayer. And said that he received Christ. And then he continued... Gambling, drugs, prostitution, and murder. And someone confronted him. Hey, I heard you went to a Billy Graham crusade and that you got saved. And Cohen said, I had, I had no idea that, that he was going to ask me to give up my, my, my job. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding on him. You must not allow your hearts to be hardened against each other. John's warning is hatred will consume you. There was a young soldier going off to World War II against the Japanese, and as his father put him on a train, he waved goodbye and he turned with bitter tears and he said, If my son is killed, I hope every Jap in the world is killed. Yet the fact that the father was a Christian made it difficult to feel that way in reality. And he had this fierce struggle within himself. And finally he realized that he couldn't do this. It wasn't Christian to hate whether his son lived or died. And he declared, I'm not going to hate. I refuse to be destroyed by hate. And a year later his son was killed in the Pacific Theater by the Japanese. And soon the life insurance money arrived. And the father didn't need the $10,000. So he sent it to the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board. And he designated it for missions to the Japanese. How could that happen? How could you do something like that? It's only by the miracle of Calvary because the truth is there's something inside of us that is broken that only Jesus can fix. And finally in verse 16 it says love resides in the love of Christ. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Cain is the example of false love. And Jesus becomes the example of true love, sacrificial love. We have in Jesus the perfect picture of love. Remember in John 5? Here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, Jesus dies for us. Without strength, totally unable to save ourselves, it says in Romans 5, 6. We're ungodly, Romans 5, 6. We're sinners of the worst sort, Romans 5, 8. We're enemies of God. We are in rebellion, cursing God, cursing Christ, cursing Christianity, neglecting the truth, ignoring the warnings, denying the truth, rejecting God. And then he shows up. He doesn't show, he doesn't meet us halfway. He doesn't go, hey, you know what? If you'll just make an effort, just move in this direction and I'll move in your direction. (coughs) God doesn't do that. He finds you when you're running as hard as you can, as fast as you can, away from him, into the darkness And then he dies for us. He takes our sin. He takes our guilt. He takes our punishment. Why? Because he really loves us. He loves us, not at the point of our cooperation, but at the point of our opposition and rebellion. Again, the ancient commentators say it bluntly and best, Christ died for those who hated him. And the Christian must confront the world with a love that is ready to die for the haters. And then finally in verse 17, love repudiates self and gives to meet the needs of others. It says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? When it says, but whoever has this world's goods, what is the meaning of world's goods in the original language? Oddly enough, the word is bios. You know that word. We get the word biology from it. It describes physical life. But here in the context, I think it means subsistence. It's talking about food, clothing, and shelter. All of the things that make physical life possible. Something that will sustain life. He's saying, how could you close your hearts? The answer is clear. If you see a person dying right before your eyes, the Bible says, help them. Martin Luther said, faith like light should always be simple, unbending, while love like warmth should beam forth on every side and bend to every necessity of the brethren. George Eldon Ladd said, Jesus defines the meaning of love for neighbor. It It means love for any man in need. And I like that. Remember Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor? And he gives the story of the Good Samaritan. What he's in effect saying is, guess what? Your neighbor is anyone who you come across who says, I need help. And by the way, in order to help, there, you have, there are three things you're going to need. Number one, you have to have the means necessary to meet the need. Number two, you have to know that the need exists. And number three, you have to be loving enough to want to share. A believer who's poor or uninformed can't be condemned because they're poor or uninformed. Paul wrote one of the many reasons to work is so that we could give in times of need. So one final thing. Do you think John's world is fundamentally different from the world in which you live? Have have people's hearts changed since he wrote these words? Does the world still stand in opposition to God? On February 9th, 1960, Adolf Coors III was kidnapped and held for ransom. And seven months later, they found his body here in Colorado on a remote hillside. He'd been shot to death. Adolf Coors IV, then 15 years old, lost not only his father, but his best friend. And for years, young Coors hated Joseph Corbett. He's the man who killed his father and who was sentenced to life for the murder. And in 1975, young Ad Coors became a Christian And while he divested himself of his interest in the family business, he couldn't divest himself of his hatred that consumed him for the man who had killed his father. He prayed to God. He prayed and he begged God to help him. He realized that his hatred for Corbett was alienating him from God and other people. And the time came when he claimed the power of the Holy Spirit and he visited Corbett in the maximum security unit of Colorado's Carson City Penitentiary. And he tried to talk with Corbett and Corbett refused to see him. Coors left a Bible. He inscribed this in the Bible's leaf. He wrote, I was here to see you today, and I'm sorry we couldn't meet. As a Christian, I was summoned by our Lord Jesus and Savior to forgive. I do forgive you. And I ask you to forgive me for the hatred that I've held in my heart against you. later, course confessed, quote, I have a love for that man that only Jesus Christ could have put into my heart. This isn't just simply an invitation to believe something that is right. It's an invitation to allow this kind of love to inform your decision making and everything that you do. I reserve the right, by the way, to come back and visit some of these verses as we continue our study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, we commit our hearts to you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. That, Lord, we would begin to understand a little bit better what it means to know you and to love you and to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.